0: Now, I've said it a hundred times, and I'll probably say it a hundred times more, that when reading scripture, context is everything. And I saw the most hilarious reason why just the other day. I saw one of those, um, one of those feel-good motivational Christian posts. If you've ever been online or on Facebook and joined a Christian group, you guys know what I'm talking about. And there was this beautiful picture. I think it was of like a sunset with this motivational quote on it that said, if then, if, you then will worship me. It will all be yours. Luke chapter 4, verse 7. Beautiful motivational post about believing God and it will all be yours if you will worship him. And it sounds really motivational and really uplifting. Until you look up that verse and you realize those were words were spoken by Satan to Jesus at the temptation in the wilderness. Context is everything. So yes, when it says, if you will worship me, it will all be yours. That verse doesn't mean what you think it means at first. Dare I say the devil's in the details, pardon the pun. But every now and again, it's wise to look up from the text and see how it all fits together. So just, just if you have your Bibles open, and I encourage you to do so, just glance at the headers of this chapter uh, or, or of the, the, the subdivisions of this chapter. And what do you see? You see Jesus healing a bunch of different kinds of people. And these aren't the mighty, the noble, the respected by first century Jewish culture, but largely second class people in the eyes of the first century Jew, I must emphasize, but not according to Jesus. He cared for all people. The scriptures tell us he by he the, no one who came to him did he cast out. He cared for all people, including the people on the the lower on society's artificial totem pole, if you will. And this is certainly true of today's text with the healing of the centurion's servant. So, what is a centurion? Who is this guy? Well, a centurion was a Roman officer who was in charge of about a hundred men. And under Roman law, what's interesting is that he, if his servant was sick, he could have just killed him. There would have been no rem, uh, repercussions for it. He could have just gotten him out of his way and got a new servant, and he's he's done. He's on to he goes about his day. But he actually tries to save him by bringing him to Jesus. That's interesting already. This already speaks very well of this particular centurion's character. We'll unpack that more in just a moment. Now, obviously, as a Roman officer, he's a Gentile or a non Jew, which, looking around the room, you know, that's just about everyone here. Uh, We are Gentiles. And uh, like the leper that we covered in a previous section, the Gentiles were considered very low on that spiritual totem pole for the first century Jew. Because rather than being a light to the nations, as Israel was called to be, we read that from Isaiah 49 a minute ago, they were rather self-righteous in their way of thinking in the first century. Very secure in their identity as Israelites, as God's chosen people, and rightfully so. But they weren't using their influence to be a light to the nations, to draw them to God. They were kind of inwardly focused, caring about themselves and just being happy that they're the ones who are the sons of Abraham, rather than spreading that light to others. And as Jesus often does, he took that understanding and turned it completely upside down. And he does so beginning in verse 5, where he says, when he had entered Capernaum, the centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. Now, after the first after the last two sermons we did on this subject, none of that is surprising to us at first glance. You now that someone has a terrible, debilitating condi- condition, Jesus has compassion on them, and he offers to go and heal them. This is just what we expect at this point in the story. But what the centurion did next is surprising in verse 8, where it says, The centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. Why does he say, I am not worthy for you to come into this house? What does this Roman understand about the Jewish Messiah? No. This, so here's what's going on here, that this servant was staying at this Roman Gentile centurion's house. And for a Jew like Jesus to enter this man's house, it would, he, Jesus would have been considered ceremonially unclean according to Levitical law. And just so we're clear, because I'm throwing out some big words there. Jesus wouldn't have sinned to enter this guy's house. That, this is a different category. This is not sin, but unclean according to Jewish custom. And we understand this to some degree. I mean, my daughters go out and they play in the backyard and they come back into the house ceremonially unclean. They're not ready for a nice dinner when they come out from playing in the sandbox and playing in the mud and getting their knees all dirty, you know, no, you come back into the house, you got to wash yourself up. There's some social ramifications. You got to wash your hands, take off your shoes, you know, and be cleaned up, if you will, in a ceremonial sense. That's the kind of unclean that we're talking about here. There's, there's more of a nuance to it, but just get that idea in your head. So that's what's going on here. And so... With that in mind, um, two shocking things happen. First, the this Roman centurion seems to be aware of that custom. He's aware. He seems to know about that by saying, "Lord, I'm not worthy of that," and he, he, he shockingly he cares about it. Because he recognizes to some degree who Jesus is, and he doesn't even want to inconvenience him in the slightest way to give him the slightest social hindrance um, of uncleanness, um, saying he's not worthy of such a sacrifice. But on the same side, let's not miss what Jesus said back to him. Because Jesus knew, he knew it was unclean, but he was ready to go to him and heal him anyway. As it said in verse 7, I will come and heal him. So for clarity, Jesus will not sin to meet you where you are. He will not encourage you to sin ever in our lives. That's clear. We know this. But he loves you enough to meet you in your mess wherever you are whatever place in life that you're in, Jesus is willing to meet you there. Jesus isn't afraid of meeting you in an unclean place. You know, I've met tons of people, and I'm sure some of you guys had, that have said, oh, no, I can't come into that church. I will be struck by lightning if I walk into that church. (laughs) Love to come with you, but that's just an excuse, and you guys all know that. Jesus has met plenty of people that I have met, meeting them in their broken places, at the bar, doing things that they have no business doing. In the act of sin, God has convicted people and set them on the right path. So Jesus is not afraid of meeting you in an unclean place. So that's an encouragement to all of us. So as a Roman officer, this centurion recognized authority when he sees it. And he could clearly see it in Jesus in verse nine, where he says, for I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and he goes, and to another, come and he comes, and to my servant, do this and he does it. And let me loosely paraphrase what he said, just so we all understand the nuance of what he's saying. He's saying, Jesus, I am a man with authority too. I say to my servant to come, and he comes. I say to them to do something, and they do it with just me saying a word. Jesus, I recognize you have that kind of authority. All you have to do is say, be healed to my servant, and it will be done. Just as those who obey me, uh, who those under me obey the sound of my voice, even if it's from a distance. What an incredible recognition that is to say that, to know that Jesus has authority over germs, over disease, over viruses, to just speak a word and they would flee away. How fascinating is that? What an incredible and accurate understanding of who God is and what Jesus can do. And unlike this centurion who only has authority over his 100 men, Jesus has all authority over heaven and earth, according to Matthew 28, including those in opposition to him. And we'll get to people like that by the end of this chapter. So just keep that back in the back of your minds. We'll come back to that. But how Jesus responds to this Gentile's faith is remarkable. Where in verse 10, he tells him, lost my place. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will recline from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So before we get to some of that heavier language at the end, it's so important to understand our modern English language has been so diluted that it almost doesn't mean anything anymore. I mean, today you'll hear somebody say, you know, especially if like a, a younger person, someone in their 20s or teens, you hear them say, Oh, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. And you go over them like, What is it? What is it? And they're like, It's a cat. Sitting in a box. How cute. I assure you that is not the most amazing thing you've seen in your life. (laughs) Why do we talk like that? We just waste our words where they doesn't actually mean anything. Where you could hear somebody say such lofty language and just be like, yeah, yeah, I'm sure, whatever. I'm sure it's wonderful, whatever it is that you're looking at. But Jews in the first century, especially in writing, they didn't waste words like that. If you wrote something down, you meant it. If you said something was amazing, it meant your heart was filled with awe, and you were in utter amazement at what you had witnessed. Modern English, it means, oh, I guess that's cool. So with that in mind, what does our text say about what Jesus thought about this man's faith. Did you catch it? it? said Jesus marveled at this man's faith. It actually moved Jesus to be marveled at him. And this is significant, because only two times in the New Testament does it say Jesus marveled at something. Here, and in Mark chapter 6, where Jesus marveled at the unbelief of his own people. Let that sink in. He marveled at the belief of this Gentile and marveled at the unbelief of his own people. How, and isn't it a coincidence that <laughs> here, here Jesus says in verse 10 before us, that with no one in Israel have I found such faith. How is it possible that this Gentile seems to understand Jesus' authority by faith, and yet his own people would later ask him, by what authority do you do these things? Let's not miss how profound this disconnect is. The Jews ought to have recognized their own Savior. Some 1,600 years of prophecies, some 300 specific prophecies of who the Messiah would be, where he would be born, the things he would do, and they missed it. It's this Roman who gets it? How is this possible? Well, to some degree, we do understand how it is possible because we see this here at home. Isn't it interesting that drug dealers, gang members, the least of those in our society who are the most outside of God's reach in our opinion, so many of them are coming to Christ. So many of them are meeting Jesus where they are and having a vibrant faith, but our own children and grandchildren who are raised in the church walk away from the faith. And see nothing significant about what we proclaim here. Interesting, isn't it? They too ought to have known better being raised around godly people worshiping on Sundays, but they fall away and those who we would think are the least expectant come to Jesus. You know, look, I was raised in this church. You guys know that. I grew up in the Sunday school here. Where is everybody? And yet a friend of mine who went to South Amboy High School, lived right around the corner from here. Grew, it, when in, in his late teens, he got the tattoo of a of his concept of a demon tattooed on his leg. And a number of years ago, I had the privilege of leading that man to Christ. Has a vibrant faith right now. How do we make sense of this? Well, I think that there are some parallels between why Christians apparently since birth walk away and the first century Jews miss Jesus. I think there's a lot of parallels. And I think the first thing to understand is that it's not in our power to save somebody and to give them a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's not something that's entirely our power. That's between them and the Holy Spirit. I mean, we read in the Old Testament of the great kings of Israel who had vibrant faith, had wicked sons. And the opposite took place where the wicked had righteous sons. It's not just about what family you're born into. So don't... And even, even Judas had Jesus himself as his teacher and he was still the son of perdition. So don't automatically blame yourself if you see that happen in your family. I'm putting that up there up front. But secondly, the greatest danger to Christianity is not atheism. It's not higher education. It's not another religion. It's not politics. The greatest threat to biblical Christianity is dead Christianity. Dead Christianity is the biggest obstacle to true faith. Here's what I mean by that. It's when Christianity becomes a culture, not a living faith based off of having a relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When it's about the things you do rather than the relationship with God that we have. It's when we pray at the dinner table because that's our culture, but we don't pray anywhere else. It's when we take our kids to church every Sunday, but we sure don't act like it getting them in the car. It's when we tell them what a priority of faith is, but then we sign them up for sports that meet Sunday morning. It's when we tell them that we are all sinners saved by grace, but we tell them that we need to dress our best to come to be able to approach God in church. As if that makes any difference to God. Isaiah wrote that all of our righteousness are as filthy rags. We might as well show up in sackcloth and ashes on Sunday. Those are symptoms, just some symptoms, of dead Christianity, which will inoculate the next generation to the real thing. I find it interesting that in the traditional vaccine model, we got this new stuff coming out now, but... The traditional vaccine model is where you would introduce the dead version of a virus into somebody's system, and your body would fight it off, because it couldn't replicate itself, it couldn't do all the harm to your body. It would fight it off, and then it would be resistant to when the real thing comes around. And when people are exposed to dead Christianity, it has a similar effect, when you're exposed to just the outward things that we do just because that's what we do. We just write off the whole thing and get resistant to the whole thing. People don't know that it's not the real thing. They don't know they're not being exposed to what Christianity actually is. Rather than being it about a relationship with the God of the universe, we make it about just our culture, the things that we do, the places we go, the things that we're supposed to say because we're all good Christian Protestants. And the same thing happened to the first century Jews, because it was all about their culture. They were proud of who they were. They were proud in their standing that we are the sons and daughters of Abraham. And they missed the relationship with God entirely, making it all about the rules that they followed and the culture that they had not realizing they really too had dead faith. That's largely why they missed Jesus. They weren't looking for anything else. They had their culture. They weren't looking for anything deeper. So the application is is staring us in the face. If you want to reach the next generation, we're not going to get it by giving them cold and lifeless Christianity. They have to see something more in us. That this generation coming up has no respect for tradition for the sake of tradition alone. They need to see that there's something to it. They We can't give away something we don't have either. We need to make sure that that's who we are. Our children need to catch us praying when they open our bedroom doors. They need to wake up early one day and see us reading our Bibles before we get our day started. They, they need to see us taking the words of Jesus seriously and being concerned about this lost and hurting world around us. Taking Jesus' call to hand to take care of the poor and needy more seriously and to communicate with our words and actions that what we proclaim within the walls of this church doesn't stop at the walls of this church, but encompasses every area of our lives, that it is worthy of the inside-out, radical transformational change that the gospel calls us to. And if that doesn't describe your own heart's desire, we need to ask why. Please don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying, hey, go out there and do all of these things at home. Take the time to ask the question why. Look, any preacher can guilt you into changing your habits for a week or two. It happens all the time. I see it all the time in Christian media. I don't desire to do that. Don't hear that from my heart. My call is to ask, if that's, if it's not your desire to meet with God, to enjoy Him, ask the hard questions. That is going to have a longer lasting impact than any guilt trip any preacher can put you on. Ask, is it possible that I don't actually love Jesus? I just love the culture of this church. Have I gotten my identity as a Christian through an institution? Rather than the living God who invited me into a relationship with him. Have I personally tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Or am I just getting somebody else's recommended recipe? So again, don't, don't go home and just do these out, again, outwardly focused things just because I said to do so. Ask the hard questions and see what God might do there. It might just mean that, hey, there is a disconnect between what we know in our minds and what we feel in our hearts and what we actually do. So I leave you with that thought. And that is the dilemma of the faith of the centurion. As Jesus told us in verse 11, that many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, an obvious wordplay for heaven. And yet the sons of the kingdom... who who were the Jews at that time. And by way of application, those of us who have lifelong memberships in the church, what does it say? Who will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, a grim reminder about the reality of hell. It's not easy to talk about. It's not fun to talk about. But hell is a real place. People are really going there. People we know and love are really going there. And people who thought they were going to heaven are going there. That's the most troubling thought in all of this. So my time is gone for me. But Jesus's point is in this passage is that those who society would think would be dining with Abraham, might be going somewhere else, headed to that place of darkness. Do you, from your heart, truly love the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you grateful for what he has done for you? Do you worship him from the heart? Or is this just a dead religion to you that starts and stops at 150 North Broadway? Fortunately, Jesus concludes with a more hopeful note than that. Verse 13, he said, And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. You know, it's, it's interesting as some people like to twist that verse like the way we talked about two weeks ago and how people saying, oh, as you believe, so it will be. Like it's as if what you believe is the main thing. But just to paraphrase to get the main point out of it again, Jesus is saying to him, because you had faith, you came to me. That being Jesus speaking. And because you came to me, you have received what you came for. Your servant is healed. (laughs) <laughs> and again, that subtle reminder that those who come to Jesus will receive that healing. Not, not, this, not today that physical kind, we have no promise of that, but the spiritual, deeper healing we talked about two weeks ago is guaranteed for everyone, including those who are afar off as they might appear. So whether you grew up in a Christian culture or you grew up committing the worst grievous of sins, Jesus is able to heal you and restore you to a relationship with God. If you have the simple faith of the centurion who trusted and believed in the authority of Jesus. Thanks be to God. Amen.